Good morning. Good morning. It was Hiram's idea to have each of my sons to introduce me before I speak. There's uh, maybe time for me to change that for the other two sessions. I am so thankful that you have come and that you're making it a part of your weekend to be with us. Uh, we are. We have done a lot of planning. I. I can't overstate enough how much this congregation has done to be prepared for this. It's an exceptional group of God's people and I look forward. One of the things I'm most excited about, those of you who have traveled here, is the opportunity you're going to get to have to get to, to know our folks, some of the finest people on earth. Uh, I also wanted to say this before we get into the lesson, and we will, that the man who led that prayer, Gary Soule, uh, he and his wife are very special to us. We've known them since the days in which I preached at uh, Cold Harbor. In fact, I probably wouldn't have gone there if it hadn't been for Gary's insistence for the elders to give a 24-year-old preacher the opportunity to come at least uh, stand in front of the congregation. So we're, we're grateful for that. They, uh, These two sons of mine that are right here, they actually watched uh, their brothers when they were born. So they're kind of adopted grandparents for them. We're talking about James, and we're looking at leadership lessons that we can glean from James the man. And so it seemed like the appropriate place for us to begin as we got started was to identify who the man is behind the book that bears his name. Now if you were here for Bart's lesson last night, he touched on the fact that there are multiple Jameses that we read about on the pages of Scripture. I count four, if I'm right. There is the James that we read about in Jesus' calling of those four fishermen. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, and one of those is James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of the apostle of love. There is a John that's mentioned. Matthew gives us the entire list of those apostles in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 3. And in and among them, there is the James, the son of Alphaeus, that is listed. You go to the very end of the book of Matthew, and you will find right before the resurrection appearances in Matthew 27 and verse 56, that scripture indicates to us that there is the James who is the son of Mary. Now Luke in his giving of the list of the apostles will give us another James. James who is the father of the other Judas in Luke chapter 6 and verse 16. Now if you will consult various experts and those who would account themselves as scholars, they're going to make some very strong arguments about who is the James that is the writer of the epistle. For example, there is in the New American Commentator, uh, Terry, uh, Peter Lane talks about uh, and makes a case for, a, a strong case, an elaborate case for James the son of Alphaeus. Uh, as you look at Galatians 1 and verse 19, the Apostle Paul refers to the James that we will try to show you is the James of the epistle. He uh, is called an apostle. Well, uh, Lane with this and for other considerations believes that perhaps that the Greek uses that word brother and cousin in such a way that if a cousin was being raised in another household, maybe as a foster or an adopted child, that he could be considered in that sense a brother. And so Lang and others make the case that James the son of Alphaeus, the apostle, is the writer of the book of James. I don't believe that that's the case. But I do believe that this James that we're going to be reading about today and we're going to be gleaning those leadership lessons from, James is the brother of Jesus. And he is a James that's already well established by the time we read about the death of James, the son of Zebedee. 
Because there's no introduction by Luke of this new James that we read about in Acts chapter 12. Just suddenly he appears on the scene as one already known and uh, who is seen among the brethren as a man of influence. So if we begin to think about that particular James... Here's a man who is going to make his appearance in Acts chapter 12. And we'll look back at this in, uh, later in this lesson. He is the James that's going to be speaking longer than anybody else at the Jerusalem conference in Acts chapter 15. He is the James that the Apostle Paul, at the end of his third missionary journey, he realizes Philip's daughters, others have said, you get to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested. He's here on that day, James is, along with the elders of the church at Jerusalem, the day that he's arrested, Acts 21 and verse 18. And then in Galatians chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 2, he is the James that is listed preeminently as the brother of our Lord. He is the one who is alongside of Paul and, uh, and uh, Peter, is listed as uh, one of the leading apostles, one of the pillars of the church, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9. He is the man that we seem to read about in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 7 who saw Jesus after his resurrection. He is there before that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 7 that he appears to all of the apostles. Now, if this is the case, and I believe as we look at the book of Acts and we look at Galatians and we look at 1 Corinthians and we look at the epistle that bears his name, we see James as one who is not only a leader in the church, but especially in the church of Jerusalem. We have no indication anywhere overtly that he is an elder. I don't believe that he is the, an apostle in the generic sense of the word, or the, the, the sense that the twelve are and that the apostle Paul is. I believe he's given a very special assignment and task, and for that reason that he is considered an apostle. But it is good for us to look at him and to see how he described himself. When you look at James, the man, as you look at the epistle that bears his name, look at what he says at the very beginning of that. First of all, he knows who he is. He says, James, a servant. Now, a servant is one who exists to do the bidding of someone else. And in this case, it's the bidding of God himself. And so as he looks at himself, he says, I am here for the purpose of God, the servant. But he also knew what he owed. Do you see what he says? He says, James, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that magnanimous term, that broad sweeping term, he speaks of the sovereignty of the one whom he has come to serve. He's Lord. He's master. He also points to the humanity of the one that he has come to serve. And as we'll see in just a moment, he knows a lot about the humanity of his brother. He is Jesus, the Son of Man, not only in that prophetic sense of being the one who has come for that special task, the Christ, but also the one who has come in the robe of humanity, 100% man as well as 100% God. He's also Christ. This points to the fact that he's the sacrifice, the one that he is the servant of, is the anointed one, the one that had been long awaited, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so do you see, this man we're going to be studying today is one who wrote and who served out of humility and out of gratitude. And as we look at what he writes in the book of James, we're going to find what can be a very practical manual for those who would lead God's people. 
We're going to look at what he says, and that's valuable. But we're going to also look at who he was. And as we look at who he was, we're going to see an amplification, a strengthening, a confirmation of the leadership lessons that we'll find in the book of James. And so that being the case, as we look at James the man, the man who was an obvious leader, a man of influence, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 13, let's look at some lessons that can help us today. The first lesson that I would suggest to you as we look at James is that leaders are the product of their influences. Now, all we would need to do is look at our initial appearances of James in the Gospels. You'll find him in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 46, in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3. And there are, are perhaps various other ways that we might tie James to being the brother of our Lord uh, and that brother of our Lord being the writer of this epistle. We might look at the, a companion general epistle, the epistle of Jude. It's not under our survey this weekend, but Jude, in a very interesting way, begins his one chapter book in the New Testament by referring to himself as Jude, the brother of James. And what does he say next? A servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He seems to identify himself with James. And in so doing, identifying himself in the way Bart did a masterful job of talking about this last night, doesn't talk of himself in an inflated sense of being the brother of Jesus, but instead the servant of the Lord Jesus. And coming from that standpoint, here's Jude, and here's James in Matthew 12, 46, and in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, who are listed alongside of two other brothers as the brothers, the earthly brothers of Jesus. He indicates himself in that way. And by the way, it's pretty much the consensus view of early church historians and early tradition that this James that we're talking about is the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lowe and Hatton talk about how this James comes on the scene and is recognized in those gospel records of the names of Jesus' brothers. But you also have those passages that we mentioned of James's preeminence and prominence as we find it in the book of James. Well, as James leads out and talks about uh, who he is in James chapter 1 and verse 1 as the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we appreciate and believe what early church historians say and these evidences that are found, Galatians 1 and verse 19 referring to James as the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, it makes us think that James grew up in the home with Jesus. And if you really want to appreciate the kind of home that they grew up in, I want you to think about what Luke tells us about Mary, the mother of Jesus. The woman who treasured in her heart the Word of God. And a woman, in, if you look at the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, you get a glimpse into her heart. We unfortunately don't know as much about Joseph and the, the surrogate fatherhood that he provides for Jesus and the fatherhood he provides for his brothers. But Mary's heart and how tuned in and dialed in she is to her responsibility, it helps us to appreciate the home in which James grew up. You know, when you think about the folks that serve in leadership today, I'm grateful for the diversity that God provides for in a multitude of men serving in leadership positions. Isn't it wonderful that God allows men of different temperaments, introverts, extroverts, those who are ready to speak like Peter, and those who are perhaps sitting back more reticently and thinking, and, and God works together, somebody who's more positive and somebody who's more negative. 
That diversity is part of God's wisdom for church organization. But I also want us to think about the fact that the men who make up church leadership, in my experience, have been men of varied backgrounds. Isn't it wonderful that there are men who have been converted to Christ? Maybe they came out of dysfunction in their childhood. Maybe they had a very rough uh, background in their childhood. And they are uh, those who perhaps came out of religious error, or maybe they had no religious affiliation at all, and they obeyed the gospel. And as a result of the transforming power of the gospel, they became men who could lead the body of Christ. But aren't you also thankful that in the body of Christ, those men who serve us as elders and who serve in leadership in the church are also those who come out of godly homes. And God works those individuals together. You know, I think about the, the, the eldership here, and it's true of every eldership that I've ever served under. We have at least two of our men that serve as elders at Lehman Avenue who were converted to Christ in their early adulthood. But we also have two of our elders whose fathers are elders. And we have one of our elders whose dad is a gospel preacher. And how those influences impacted the leadership of their homes. You know, those of us who find ourselves, and I, I recognize somebody asked about whether women could come to leadership classes. We said the only restricted area is the women's classes, only the ladies can be there. But I look in here and I see ladies. And, and as you think about the homes in which you have those children growing up, you are grooming tomorrow's leaders. Elders have elders. Preachers have preachers. And it gives impetus to Proverbs 22 and verse 6 where Solomon says to train up a child in the way he should go and when he's old he will not depart from it. Or in Ephesians 6 and verse 4, bringing up our children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord through our stewardship of that opportunity in the home. We are raising daughters to marry those men who would serve as church leaders. We are raising sons to do that same thing. As you look at James in his home environment, he is groomed as so many are, to do the work that they do through the influence of the home. There's other influences, and we need all of those. Boy, what an opportunity God gives in the home. But then second, I want you to notice with me that leaders lean on Scripture for their decision-making. Now, where we go from here is to that what we call often the Jerusalem Conference. And in Acts chapter 15... The circumstances set themselves up to where it's necessary for God's people to handle an issue that's arisen. And what's interesting in the book of Acts, you want to read through and find themes and threads in the book of Acts? What you'll find in the book of Acts is there's great success. You know what always follows great success in the book of Acts? Problems. And you know what always follows the problems that arise in the book of Acts? A God-honoring, word-affirming solution. And you know what always follows that solution? Growth. And that's the cycle that finds its way all the way through the book. So when we get to Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas have just gone on the first missionary journey. Alright, so they've returned. And about that time, according to Acts chapter 15 and verse 1, you have these uh, Jewish Christians who are troubling the church by saying that the Gentiles had to be circumcised. So this causes, according to verse 2, great debate and great dissension. And the elders and the apostles convene in Jerusalem to try to talk through this. This is not some kind of official or religious council where they're dictating truth. 
God's truth is to be found in His Word, they're coming together to say, this is a practical problem. We're growing. Things are going forward. But now we've got this huge challenge that could threaten the future growth of the church. How are we going to resolve it? So that august group of individuals, verse 4 and verse 6, that come together. It's interesting that the first outside of that, or the first recorded by Luke that speaks is Peter, the man who has uh, used the keys of the kingdom to open the door to the Jews and now to the Gentiles. He gets up and he makes this statement saying uh, how he believes that it, it should be or that it is. And then in verse 12, you have Paul and Barnabas, the missionaries. They've come back from the missionary journeys and as they stand before the people, they report on the great things that God has done among the Gentiles. But who's the first to open his Bible? It's James. And James in verse 13 through 21, he's, he, he looks and he appeals to Scripture. And it seems to me that he gives us a three-part process that's helpful to us. The first thing that we notice is that he uses a relevant passage. Right, we have a problem, right? Here's the Gentiles. Do they need to be circumcised or do they not need to be circumcised? Maybe that seems very odd, obscure to you, but it was heart and center of who they were and who they were, uh, were trying to be in carrying out the Great Commission. And so James, with his deep knowledge of the Word of God, who is an, a recognized leader of the church, he goes to Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and verse 12, a relevant passage, and he examines it and he presents it for them to consider. Here's a problem. Here's what the Bible says about the problem. That's the first part of the process. The second part of the process is that he makes practical application of it. What he says in verse 19 and verse 20 is, hey, we recognize how God has called the Gentiles to him. So let us write and instruct them not to eat those things that have been contaminated by idols or uh, to abstain from sexual immorality, or those things that are strangled and from blood. And so he takes the Bible, he's able to use Scripture in a way that helps them to make practical application and to exercise righteous judgment. Okay, so we have a passage of Scripture, we have a, an application and a judgment from that, and then third, what we have as a part of this process is that the whole body, as it's assembled here, that includes the apostles and the elders, they listen to, they're influenced by what God's Word has to say, and then they move forward as the result. What I want you to see is that James, nor anybody else, adds to or takes away from God's Word. They are going strictly by what God's Word has revealed. If they're going to solve this practical dilemma, they have got to lean on the eternal wisdom of God. They don't have their New Testament written, it's being written by inspired writers who look back on these events, but they do have their Old Testament. Now, let me suggest to you that I believe that for leaders to be God-honoring, that that's exactly the process that's followed today. Amen. You know, when you think about those moral problems that arise, and there's some very thorny ones, and I want to speak very uh, sensitively to this, but you think about the dilemmas that church leaders are faced with. Those sweet couples that may be looking into finding a church home are those that we become exposed to and are striving to carry out the Great Commission. And in the process of getting to know them, we find out that there is one or both of them that are in a marriage that God would call, through His Word, unscriptural. 
Or perhaps you find a circumstance where there is a case of adultery that arises and becomes known to the leadership. Or perhaps you have someone who's consumed with and overcome by pornography. Or perhaps you have an individual who's struggling with whether or not it's okay to be gay. When faced with those kinds of moral dilemmas, what God's leaders do not do is say, how beloved are they to the congregation? That's, that's going to influence how we act or move forward. Or how many family members do they have that's a part of this congregation? Or how much of a controversy is this going to cause if we stand where God has clearly spoken? We're going to talk about the how in just a moment. Not bulls in a china shop. Not those who go in with a stick of dynamite and blow things up. There's a great sensitivity. God gives us the how of Scripture that we're to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4 and verse 15, that we're to be gentle, we're to be kind to all as we serve in a leadership capacity. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, or think about doctrinal matters that arise. When we think about how worship is to be done that honors and pleases what God's revealed in His Word. If we think about who are those that God has ordained to lead in the church? Or who are those as we look at uh, what God's Word says about how the plan of salvation is going to be taught? What, what, what are we going to do with the essential nature of baptism? What's not done is we don't lick our finger to the culture of the church or to the culture of society. Nor do we find ourselves in a situation where we say what's the most politically correct? The way that these things are handled that honors God is we say, what does the Scripture say? Let's look and see where the relevant passage is. And let's make proper application of that. And having done so, let's lead God's people in the Christ-like spirit to do what God's Word has to say. When I look at James, isn't it remarkable? He's the guy who says, what does God have to say about that? Listen, I appreciate very much elderships and I'm very thankful that the elders that I've served under, even when they felt like their backs were against the proverbial wall, when it was something that was unpopular that they did not want to do, that even if they had to be encouraged, when they opened up God's Word, they said, this is what He says. This is what we need to do. Amen. James is a wonderful example of that. He is one who goes to Scripture in order to find what God's Word says about it. But then, number three, as we hasten on Leaders, we learn from James, should not be held hostage to their past. You know, uh, we have John's unambiguous statement about where uh, James was when Jesus was doing his public ministry. John 7 and verse 5 says that even John's brothers did not believe in him. Now we might ask ourselves, for how long did this last? We know it doesn't last forever because of Acts and because of Galatians and 1 Corinthians and uh, the book of James. But there was a point in time where he's not believing in his brother Jesus. But there's a change that takes place. And I think Bart was right that the pivotal moment is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 7. That's that 40-day period between the resurrection and the ascension. And it's significant enough that the inspired apostle says that Jesus appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And I want you to see what happens in James's life from that moment forward. 
Where we see him next, I believe chronologically, is in Acts chapter 1 and verse 13. And you have the 120 in the upper room. And there's the apostles there. And there are the women there. And there are others. But who else is there? There's the brothers of Jesus. James now has been transformed. He's no longer the unbeliever. He's a believer. And as a result of that, he lives his life going forward far differently than he had before. One of the beautiful things about the gospel is its power to change us, to be something better than we would have been before and otherwise and without Jesus because of the Christ who is in us. When we look at the leadership of James, we should not hold him hostage to his unbelieving past. You know, I think that sometimes that leaders themselves find themselves who are held hostage to their past, who, who can't forget their past, I've known good men, godly men, who should have let go of the guilt long ago. But I think about the Apostle Paul. Isn't he one like that? The Apostle Paul could not write very long before he starts talking about where he was before Christ. Acts 22, Acts 26, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Galatians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 1. In all of those places, in one way or another, he's looking back and he talks about how he hurt Christ and the cause of Christ and the people of Christ. But you know, I get no sense in any of those passages that he let his sinful past keep him from being who God had called him to be now. It didn't stifle his service. He used that to motivate him. May I suggest to you that sometimes it's not just us that hold ourselves hostage to a sinful past. Have you ever experienced that others try to hold you hostage to your past? In John chapter 9, there's a man who was born blind. And Jesus restores his sight. And after he regains his sight, do you remember what his neighbors and acquaintances said? Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Here's a man who can see now. They could still see a blind beggar. That's all that they, they saw. And no less than our Lord. Didn't He have to endure that? Do you, do you remember how the, the religious opponents of Jesus are saying it's not this, Jesus, the carpenter's son, and are, and are not His brothers with us? Or are those in Galilee in John 6 and verse 42, it's not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? I suggest to you that as we try to engage in leadership development, that we don't try to hold a man hostage to what they used to be. And now with John's uh, uh, record of the man who was born blind, and with Jesus, it wasn't a sinful past, but it was a past in which they were more limited or different than they were now. They were fuller, they were more than they were when those folks knew them before. Sometimes we'll hold a man hostage to what he used to be 5, 10, 15 years ago. And we don't account for the fact that he has grown, he's developed, he's changed. That may also be the case if it's not immaturity, if there's a sinful past. Aren't you thankful for what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9? He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators or idolaters or adulterers or effeminate or homosexuals or thieves or covetous or extortioners or revilers or covetous shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. He's not rubbing their noses in it. He says, But you are washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Wise groomers of leaders don't hold men who have changed hostage to their past. 
And James is a man who can get past what he was before and talk about what he is now. Let's move on. You may have seen this a moment ago. This is lesson number four. Godly leaders pray. Now, I say that to say that there's no overt statement in the revealed passages of the New Testament that show us anything about James's personal prayer life. Now, you'll notice the name Hagesippus up there. He is an early church uh, source that was actually quoted. We don't have his writings, but he lived 115 to 185, and other early church fathers would refer back to his words. And he is perhaps responsible in part for James uh, getting that the reputation as being James the Just, as he was often referred to. And James the Just is uh, called that, according to Hegesippus, for his frequent habit of going into the temple alone and praying for the forgiveness of his people. And he stayed so long upon his knees that they became fixed in like a camel because of his desire to pray. For his people. Well, I like that. I'm not sure if it's actually the truth or not. But he developed a reputation in the early church as being a man of prayer. But don't you see it in his writings? Don't we talk about the things that matter to us? And do you think that prayer matters to James? Look at how he starts and ends the letter. That's a great way to know what a book is about. In James chapter 1, he encourages them not to be doubting, but to ask when they're struggling for God to help them. And then in chapter 4 and verse 2, he says you don't have because you don't ask. And you need to be careful to, to look at your motivation when you do ask. And then you have that longest section in James chapter 5, verse 13 through 18. We're going to devote two sections tomorrow in the auditorium uh, to James chapter 5 verse 13 through 18. And you remember what James says there. Is there any uh, afflicted among you? Let him praise. Any merry? Let him sing. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them come and pray over him. Uh, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man does much good. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. And he prayed to God that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven brought forth its rain. And the earth brought forth its fruit. Do you see how James lays that out for us? And he gives us some great principles. He emphasizes the importance of prayer, especially among those who would lead us. And I think we find some principles in James 5, 13 through 18. The first is that folks should have a natural response to call out to the elders to come and to pray for them when they're sick. I, I mean physically sick. I remember, and I know Glenn will remember Russell Young and Jim Dalton. They were the elders that were serving when I was uh, first at, at uh, the Cold Harbor Congregation. There was a man in Williamsburg, and I can't remember his name now, who had an association with Russell before he was dying of cancer. And he asked Jim and Russell, and I got to tag along with that and go down there as they prayed for him. They, he asked them to bring oil to pour over them, and they said, "There's no harm in doing that." They didn't want to, you know. He's he's dying. They they didn't try to parse that for him. Just took it down there. But here's the point: their prayers meant so much to this man mm -hmm. that they asked those men to drive over an hour to come down and pray with them. The power of elders' prayers. 
tell you there are other things that we can see. If you look there, elders should pray in faith. You think about the qualifications of an elder, and an elder is one who's devout, according to Titus 1 and verse 8. You also see that elders' prayers can accomplish so much good. There's so much power that rests on that, and the prayer of elders makes a difference. Look at what it said in verse 15 and verse 16. It helps with those who are sick. It helps with those who have sin problems. And James just summarizes it with that righteous person of whom elders should be certainly a part, that it accomplishes much. This past Sunday night, our elders made an announcement to the congregation. We're going to be a building relocating over to Cumberland Trace not far from here to accommodate the growth, the parking spaces that are needing, and the, the growth that is occurring in the congregation. And they chose to do it this way. They planned out all of this. Each one of them wanted to pray a prayer about some specific aspect of both this work and where we're going. I've sat in a lot of elders' preachers' meetings since I've been here in three and a half years. On many occasions, I've heard those men pray. I'm so thankful for elders whose first response is to pray. To stop what they're doing. Sometimes when people come in and are talking about something, whether it's a crisis issue or if it's some plan that they have, to say, before you leave, let's stop and let's pray. Godly leaders pray. But then finally, we see that leaders are servants. I love how he starts off. James 1 and verse 1. James is servant. Hey, how, how is he seen by the early church? It's really remarkable. He's a pillar. He's in the same breath with Peter and Paul and John. He's one of a small group of people who can say that the Messiah is my earthly brother. He's a man to whom others defer. Hey, Peter's out of prison. What does he say? Acts 12, 17. Go and tell James and all the brethren. And when Paul has come off that third missionary journey and he comes to Jerusalem on that fateful day, in Acts 21 and verse 18, Luke says that Paul went to see James and the apostles. And so here's how the others are looking in the early church at James. And by the way, you go back out to that secular early church history and if you have folks, as we're prone to do, when a man is righteous, we begin to elevate him maybe too high. So you have the Ebionites and the Samachians who are giving him a place. They, they venerate him as uh, the chief apostle. Uh, they would say that he is above those men that I mentioned a moment ago. But how does he look at himself? Listen, we need... I don't think that our elders in any congregation are overly encouraged and overly praised. I guarantee you they don't hear enough how much we appreciate them. But as we do our part to encourage them, we need to appreciate the fact that God's leaders are humble individuals. Ed Dobson talks about something he saw at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. He saw an aged rabbi. And that rabbi, as he was there, he I thought I had a picture of that. I guess I don't know. I'll talk about that at another time. But Ed Dobson says this man was stooped over he used his cane and he limped when he walked. And he had five younger followers with him. And you can tell he said that they were followers of this rabbi because they also limped and leaned to the left as they followed their rabbi. They wanted to be just like him. Isn't that James? His master teacher? 
He was trying to be like Him. Isn't that the task for God's leaders today? To think like and to talk like and to act like our Master Teacher as best we can? As Paul would say, imitate me, follow me as I follow Jesus Christ. When I look at James' servant leadership, perhaps one of the most important aspects that we could ever talk about for elders to exhibit who are like their master, who says, I didn't come to be served, I, uh, to serve, yeah, to be served, but to serve, Matthew 20 and verse 28. He who will be great will be servant of all and last of all, Mark chapter 9 and verse 36. So we can look at how he is addressed and described in the, the Bible. We won't have time because of the clock here to deal with Philippians 2, 3, through 8, but there's some great, rich material on uh, leaders from that passage. But who is the leader of the book of James? Wouldn't you think that a man who is such a humble leader would be one who would recognize those in the congregation that maybe others would overlook? He talks about the brother of humble circumstances in chapter 1. He pays attention to the poor man in James chapter 2 and verse 3. He notices the brother or sister who is destitute and without daily food in James 2 and verse 15. He is the one who sees the humble in James chapter 4 and verse 6. He sees the laborers in James chapter 5 and verse 4. What an example that God's leaders look not only at the rich and the well placed, but they see those that others don't see. And they demonstrate their leadership in that regard. Hey, who are the leaders in the book of James? Before we let ourselves off the hook, because I don't know how many elders we have in here. I know a lot of you aren't elders. But look and see who he says. It's the righteous person. James chapter 1 and verse 26. It's the teacher. James chapter 3 and verse 1. It's the one who's attuned to heavenly wisdom. James chapter 3, verse 13 through verse 18. It's the elders, James chapter 5 and verse 14. It's great Old Testament characters like Abraham and Elijah and Job. And it's also brethren, one of the key words of the book of James, 19 times in 17 verses. And so we find ourselves as leaders in the home and in the church and in a, in a dark and unsavory world where to be light and where to be salt. We need great examples of leadership. And I thank God that He's given us in James one such example. Let's Amen. follow Him as He follows Christ. Amen. Amen.